When you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you picture the roaring 20s and gangsters like Al Capone? Maybe you think of drug prohibition, gambling, sex work, or age restrictions on tobacco. Maybe you consider the migrants who are forbidden from crossing international borders. Whatever comes to mind, you probably know that various forms of prohibition are embedded into the fabric of our society, and if you're like most people, you don't think it's working. I'm Scott Cecil, the host of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. On this show, I explore the impacts of prohibition by interviewing those who are working to dismantle, create, or maintain its various forms. This is Prohibited. Hello, and welcome to Prohibited. For this episode, I'm joined by Sam Tracy. Sam is the former chairman of the board of Students for Sensible Drug Policy and currently works as an associate with VS Strategies. Sam is politically savvy and is also the former chair of the Portland, Maine Democratic City Committee. Sam joined me to talk about the wave of drug policy reform and cannabis reform ballot initiatives on the 2020 ballot during this previous election. You can also read some of Sam's analysis about drug policy reform and other ballot initiatives by checking out his blog, Compound Interest, which is linked in the description to the episode. So without further delay, let's get to the interview with Sam. Sam Tracy, thank you so much for joining me on Prohibited. Yeah, thanks for having me so much, Scott. It's uh, really fun to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. Sam, you used to host one of my all-time favorite podcasts, This Week in Drugs, which listeners can find an archive of at thisweekindrugs.org. So I was a guest on your show a couple of times, so I'm really happy to get to reverse roles by having you on the show today. Yeah, likewise. It's really awesome to see you uh, kind of picking up the torch of awesome drug policy podcasts since it's been a few years since Twid's been uh, on the air or on the internet, uh, but Prohibited is awesome, and it's uh, really good to see uh, you going strong in multiple seasons. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to tell the world that I was inspired to do this podcast in part by This Week in Drugs, so it's an honor to have you here, Sam. And there was a lot happening in terms of drug policy all across the country during the 2020 election. There were a handful of states that had ballot initiatives related to ending cannabis prohibition through either medical cannabis, adult use cannabis, or both in the case of one of the states. And we'll get to all of those in a moment. But first, I want to zero in on a few other drug decriminalization measures, specifically in Washington, D.C. and Oregon. So beginning with the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. voters overwhelmingly supported Initiative 81, the Decrim Nature campaign, which effectively decriminalized the simple possession of psilocybin mushrooms and other, quote, plant-based psychedelic medicines. D.C. now joins the cities of Denver, Colorado, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Oakland and Santa Cruz in California in passing lowest law enforcement priority legislation related to psilocybin mushrooms and or other plant-based psychedelic medicines. So Sam, this ballot initiative passed by more than 50 points 
as of yesterday, the day we're recording this is November 11th, the vote, st- the vote tally stood at 77% in favor and 23% opposed. So were you surprised at all by the margin of victory here? I was a little bit surprised, but honestly, not that much, just since I, I really did think that this was going to win. Um, I mean, if you look back at uh, in 2014, it was when D.C. voted on legalizing cannabis for adults, and that vote was uh, about 70 percent in favor, which, um, you know, at the time was uh, the highest that we'd ever had. Um, but now, uh, you know, looking six years later, public opinion has moved so far in favor. I'm sure that would probably be, you know, 80 or 90 percent today. Um, and so this one was a little different since it was, you know, just lowest law enforcement priority. It w- didn't go quite as far. But talking about psychedelics, it goes further in most voters' minds. Um, so I was thinking it would be roughly the same. But it is, you know, really encouraging to see that it actually, you know, was a 10 percent increase in the um, number of people who supported this. So going from 70 to 77. So, um, yeah, it's really awesome to see that this passed by such a huge margin. Yeah, thank you so much for that analysis. And before we turn to Oregon, though, I want to know, Sam, what you think of lowest law enforcement priorities, what you think of that approach generally. Lowest law enforcement priorities were at one time really the go-to policy prescription for municipalities when it came to cannabis decriminalization in recent decades preceding, preceding this one. Do you feel that this is an effective form of drug decriminalization? And then also, can lowest law enforcement priority legislation translate into state policy? Or do you think that these are really only effective at the municipal level? Yeah, I was honestly really surprised to learn that the D.C. measure was a lowest law enforcement priority one um, for the first time when I did, just because they, the campaign used the language decriminalized nature. A lot of people talked about it being decrim, but it actually isn't because, um, I mean, it is still criminalized. It's just the lowest of all of the law enforcement priorities. Um, so I'm not sure exactly why they did that. I can imagine, I guess, a few different reasons. I don't know. Um, I was looking at it just kind of much more from an outside perspective. I wasn't involved there or anything. But previously, I mean, law, these lowest law enforcement priority initiatives were really, really useful when it came to local governments trying to do something at the local level while the state was still not moving along with reform. So, you know, like Oakland making it the lowest law enforcement priority while it was still criminalized at the state level in California so that just Oakland cops weren't spending their time, you know, raiding uh, Oaksterdam. And so um, I don't really know why you do that in D.C. just because they do have the power to actually decriminalize or even legalize uh, through a D.C. initiative. Um, So I don't know if this had anything to do with the Harris Amendment or something, uh, Andy Harris, um, or if it was just kind of their strategy. I'm not sure. Thank you. And for listeners, Andy Harris is a Maryland congressman, the only current Republican in that state's congressional delegation who has been blocking cannabis legalization in the district since 2014 using federal appropriations riders to the federal budget. But, But Sam, let's move to Oregon. Listeners of the show will remember that we had Sam Chapman on the show back in April for our season two premiere episode. And Oregon voters, by about a 12 point margin, 56 to 44%, approved the ballot initiative IP34 to set up 
a regulated system for adult access to psilocybin therapy, where the state will actually issue licenses to caregivers who would then be able to administer psilocybin in a controlled setting. So for listeners, if you didn't hear that episode from April 1st, I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that. But Sam, this is quite a different approach to ending prohibition of this particular substance than what we're seeing in those municipalities I mentioned earlier, including D.C. Now that IP34 was passed by voters in Oregon, do you see that sort of medicalized approach being taken in other states? Or will we see more of a traditional decrim sort of campaign? Or maybe we'll see some of both. Yeah, it is a really fascinating one. Um, And before talking about it in more detail, I do just want to say congrats to Sam Chapman, uh, who is another Sam from SSDP who has, uh, you know, red hair and often facial hair uh, that the two of us get confused sometimes. Different SSDP Sam, uh, East Coast and West Coast. Uh, But uh, yeah, he did awesome work on that campaign. It's really exciting to see Oregon being the first state doing this. Um, And it is really cool to think about how this is going to impact other states because, I mean, it's kind of an interesting parallel to the medical marijuana movement, which was basically, you know, us trying to do this at the state level uh, because the FDA uh, was refusing to put marijuana through the proper channels. um, So needed to create kind of this alternative regulatory system at the state level for it. Um, And with this, it's basically the same thing because. You know, this is the sort of thing that I think will be approved by the FDA eventually. Um, And, you know, I'm not sure when that will be, probably five to 15 years, somewhere around there. Um, But I know that, you know, MAPS is uh, doing awesome work putting uh, MDMA through the FDA process and it's MDMA assisted therapy um, like this is talking about. Um, I don't know if. You know, other organizations are getting involved as well um, in the psychedelics uh, medical world. So maybe others might be trying to do this uh, with psilocybin or maybe MAPS will do it uh, in the future. But yeah, now Oregon is just going ahead and doing it first uh, and seeing what the federal government will do later. So it is a, a really cool approach and a way to get this important therapy to people faster. And Sam mentioned FDA approval in there. So for listeners, you'll remember from the episode we did with Sam Chapman that the FDA actually has granted psilocybin breakthrough therapy status, which makes it a little bit easier for it to be used in research and hopefully is fast-tracking it to be uh, available to folks pharmaceutically. All right, Sam, we're going to stick with Oregon for what I personally think, and I I suspect you're going to agree with me on this. I personally think that this other Oregon vote will be seen as the most consequential moment of the 2020 elections in terms of drug policy. Oregon voters also approved a ballot initiative to decriminalize the simple possession of all drugs. So Sam, I don't need to describe to you nor our audience how huge of a development this is. So what's your take? Is this as big of a deal as I think it is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is of all of the initiatives that passed uh, last week. This is the one I'm the most excited about more than adult use uh, marijuana initiatives, uh, more than um, anything else that was on the ballot, just because this is the first time that American state is basically taking the Portugal model of uh, drug policy. So, um, I mean, they adopted that back in 2001 of saying, okay, all drug possession is decriminalized. Um, if you get caught, uh, they end up taught, I think it's, you know, just a confiscation. Um, and then they'll 
refer you to different health services. Um, and there's some, you know, low level fines involved, but no one's getting arrested for drug possession, no matter what the drug is. And that just makes so much more sense to me. Um, and I've, you know, for years been hoping that uh, some state would uh, follow that model. Um, but now, you know, Oregon is going to be the first one, uh, thanks to the activists who passed this initiative. So it's really exciting. And I hope that this is kind of the next big thing in, in ballot initiative reform, just since we've got, you know, so many states with adult use now, um, 15 states. Uh, and so there's need to do something next. And I think this is it. I'm incredibly excited as well. And I'm sure you've witnessed something I've witnessed in the last week or so, which is the conversation around the need to go for drug decriminalization at the state level rather than a sort of more incremental approach going substance by substance. Uh, seems that, that conversation has already been happening um, in some of the circles that I'm in. And has that been your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, we could take the approach of doing a bunch of, uh, you know, broad categories of starting with the plant based psychedelics, and then moving to, you know, non plant based, and then maybe over to, uh, you know, opiates and things like that. But it's tough, since each one has different public perceptions, and you have to keep fighting expensive campaigns over and over again. Um, And since public opinion does seem to be there, um, this passed by uh, pretty good margins as well. I think that it does make sense to just go for the broadest policy possible because the same arguments apply to every single one. It's not about the drug. It's about the policy. Should we talk about weed? Sure. Let's do it. (laughs) So so (laughs) hard to avoid. Yes, let's do it. Cannabis had a huge night on election night. Continuing with the trend of every election cycle since 2012, where the vast majority of statewide cannabis ballot initiatives have passed. All five states that had measures on the ballot this year passed, and most of them passed by huge margins. So let's start with the two that might surprise folks. Both the states of South Dakota and Montana legalized adult-use cannabis by double-digit margins. So Sam, do you think this means we're poised to see a wave of states in the Northern Plains and the interior West begin to legalize cannabis for adult use, adult use because there's a, there's a really blank spot on the map in terms of legaliz- legalization states outside of Colorado and that part of the country. Was this election the beginning of a trend for that region? I do really hope so. Um, I mean, they in spe- specifically in South Dakota, they you know broke new ground being the very first state to go directly from prohibition to adult use. I mean, they passed medical at the same time, but there, every other state had at least had some experience with having, you know, open dispensaries and uh, people involved in the program on the medical side, but they just jumped directly into allowing it for all adults. Um, and so it does also seem that no matter what, that medical is always going to win whenever it's on the ballot, but it is starting to seem like adult use could just be in the same boat. I mean, every single one of them won last week. Um and these were some pretty big margins. So, yeah, uh, last time uh, or this year we had Nebraska and Idaho. There were ballot initiative campaigns that were trying to put together medical initiatives, but they fell short due to COVID. Um, so those will both be back in 2022. Uh, but maybe it makes sense for them to just go straight for adult use now that South Dakota did it first. Um, and, and that's not out of question anymore. Thank you, Sam. And for listeners, if you didn't catch an episode from a couple of months ago, the Cornhusker Cannabis Court case, we do a deep dive into why their ballot initiative didn't make the ballot. They actually 
did collect enough signatures, but they were blocked by the state's Supreme Court from appearing on the ballot. But Sam, I have to admit, I wasn't aware of Idaho, so thank you for telling me about that. I'm definitely going to look into that. And hopefully... Our friends listening from Idaho and Nebraska, if they're gonna, if they're going to try for another ballot initiative in the next cycle or in 2024, maybe the results of South Dakota and Montana will lead them to push for both medical and adult use at the same time. It'll be interesting to see if that starts to catch on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, and my mistake about Nebraska, I forgot that it was the the court that really. Uh, uh, was the barrier there rather than the the signature gathering? But it would be cool if this is just an opportunity for them to uh, go even bigger uh, next time around. Um, and I think it is also though worth noting that um, with these kind of big jumps, that sometimes the state government can be uh, a major barrier as well. Um, I mean, in South Dakota specifically, Republicans control uh, both the governor's office and both houses of the state legislature. And there have been some worrying statements about them. Uh, You know, they were basically all opposed to this um, and it will rely on them to actually implement. And the governor has said some stuff about maybe not doing that properly. Um, So we do need to make sure that the state Governments do also listen to the people when, when these get passed. You're listening to Prohibited. Before we continue discussing the big wins for cannabis on election night, let's take a moment to hear about one of our season two advocacy sponsors, whose support makes this show possible. This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by MCBA, the Minority Cannabis Business Association, a nonprofit business league who serves minority cannabis entrepreneurs, workers, patients, and consumers. MCBA's primary mission is to create an equitable cannabis industry through the economic empowerment of communities of color who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. MCBA leads a network of cannabis entrepreneurs and activists who engage directly with policymakers to advocate for fair implementation and enforcement of sensible cannabis policies. Do you think we should prioritize establishing an equitable cannabis industry? Then you can harness the power of MCBA's network to connect cannabis enthusiasts of color to the resources and businesses that can assist them. Support MCBA by joining their growing network of entrepreneurs and activists or become a donor. For more information, contact MCBA today at info at minoritycannabis.org or visit their website at minoritycannabis.org. You can support the Minority Cannabis Industry Association today. Okay, welcome back to Prohibited. Sam, New Jersey voters also legalized cannabis during this election by a two-to-one margin, so about 66 to 33%. This has been a long time coming for the Garden State. New Jersey's current governor ran on adult use legalization in 2017, and there have been multiple bills introduced in the past couple of years, but legislators have not been able to get it across the finish line. How will this election impact that? Because if I understand it correctly, this ballot initiative was written, but it still relies on the legislature to take action. So what does the landscape look like after this election result? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really unique one um, since, yeah, all the initiative really says is we should legalize marijuana for adults, um, legislature figure it out. But it was um, much better than it sounds because the legislature is also the ones who put it there. Um, so it wasn't a group of citizens saying, okay, we want to do this, but now legislature figure out the details. It was kind of 
you know, it's unfortunate that it came to this, but in a way it was the legislature asking permission to voters like, we want to move forward with this, but want to make sure that it has public support so that the opponents, you know, can't just claim that this is controversial. Can we move forward with this? And then the voters gave him a thumbs up and said, okay, now we can move forward. So it does seem that it is going to sail through um, just, uh, you know, a couple days after it passed, they introduced a bill to implement it and are moving forward through that process. Um, And the governor already appointed um, the head of uh, the agency that's going to be implementing it. So it is moving quickly, thankfully. Um, And it was, yeah, just a a strange dynamic of them kind of asking for permission first, but now they're charging ahead. Are you hearing any chatter or do you have any instincts about when you think this will be written into law? Is this going to happen in 2021, are they working on it already now? Do you, do you know anything about where they are in the process at this point? Yeah, I'm not sure about the exact details of um, you know deadlines there, um, but I think it will be just a few months at most. Um, there's a chance that maybe they could be trying to ram this through um, you know in a matter of weeks. I hope that's not the case because there have been a few people who. Um, have been kind of sounding alarms of like, hey, they're already trying to have hearings on this, but it was a 200-page bill, um, and we need to make sure that there is an opportunity for public input here. Um, Because, yeah, in in most states, uh, we are in the situation of trying to urge state governments to move more quickly, um, especially with regulators and taking a long time to implement the will of the voters. But here we do also want to make sure that the legislature has a deliberative process. and so uh, I think it probably will be just a couple of months. But then, of course, there does need time for the regulators to uh, propose and approve all of the regulations. So sales will still be um, a little further down the road. We're going to have to watch this closely because I anticipate, and maybe this is wishful thinking, but I'm hopeful that once New Jersey's adult use regulatory system comes online, you know, there are a lot of people in Pennsylvania and there are a lot of people in New York, which are states that border New Jersey. And I suspect that lawmakers, business people, and residents of those two bordering states are probably going to be making a lot more noise about cannabis legalization there simply because they stand to lose out on a lot of tax revenue and just people crossing state lines to purchase cannabis rather than simply legalizing it in their own states. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays mm-hmm. out. Yeah, and it does bleed up to um, my home state of Connecticut as well, who for, you know, they border Massachusetts. And so um, that's been part of the conversation for a long time. But there are parts of Connecticut that are closer to New Jersey than to Massachusetts, that little tail coming off the uh, uh, southwest end. And so um, I think this will impact that conversation a lot. And in the age of COVID, um, I believe it was the Connecticut governor, Ned Lamont, who was recently saying, hey, you know, having different marijuana policies in Massachusetts than Connecticut is making all these Connecticut Connecticut people drive out of state to make these purchases, which we don't want people driving out of state to go to stores in Massachusetts during COVID times. Um, so let's have some domestic marijuana stores in Connecticut. So uh, yeah, just one more reason to, to move forward in those states that don't have ballot initiatives. Well, let's turn to the next state that passed adult use legalization this year, Arizona. So back in 2016, Arizona was the only one of eight or nine states that had cannabis-related ballot initiatives, which didn't pass. It lost by about nine points. This time, in 2020, voters did approve legalization by 20 points, about 60-40. I got my start, as you know, Sam, in drug policy in Arizona about 10 years ago or so. 
And I know there was sort of a split in the movement in the state between industry actors, so folks who owned the existing medical cannabis dispensaries, and some portions of the grassroots advocacy community. And I think that divide contributed to the failure of passage in 2016. So what was the difference this time around? Was that divide healed? Or did it just end up not mattering as support for cannabis legalization uh, has grown across the US, including in Arizona? So yeah, I'm also really curious about how much healing happened there since I was also watching the campaign closely, but from the outside, I wasn't personally involved. So I know that there was that divide back in 2016. I know that they did uh, you know, make amends at the time, but it probably just wasn't enough to get it over the finish line. Um, and so hopefully in the years past, they have uh, been able to, to heal that even more. Um, but as you said, I think... Uh, with that aside, uh, there's just been so much growth in support for legalization, you know, all over the place, uh, but including in the Southwest. And so I think that, you know, if you ran the exact same campaign these four years later, um, also probably with higher turnout among young people, I know that that was a trend um, across the country with Trump being on the ballot. And so uh, I think it would have passed either way. Um, but this did also include um, 26 new licenses for social equity applicants. Uh, so I think that the industry uh, did, you know, listen to a lot of the criticisms from last time and pass and create a better initiative. Um, there are some some benefits for, uh, you know, the medical licensees getting a head start, but um, having additional licenses for social equity applicants, I think, is uh, a really good sign. Um since priorities have have changed a lot in the past few years, too. To pause here on Arizona for a moment before we keep going, just to give an historical analysis and a little bit of a deeper dive into what might have been happening in 2016. And, And Sam, this also ties into something you were mentioning about South Dakota earlier and some other states that have unfavorable governors and unfavorable state legislatures or both. That was the case in Arizona in 2010, when that state's medical cannabis ballot initiative passed by a razor-thin margin. It was less than a point. It actually failed on election night and got over the hump with uh, provisional ballots and absentee ballots. But what ended up happening is that ballot initiative stipulated that any medical patient that had a medical card that was more than 25 miles from a dispensary was able to grow their own cannabis. And since then, at the time, Governor Jan Brewer of Arizona was, and, the, and the Republicans in the legislature were trying to block the medical cannabis law from going into effect. They didn't allow any dispensaries to open for several years. And so the maybe unintended consequence then was that every single patient, and by that point there were tens of thousands of them, every patient that had a medical card was able to grow their own cannabis because everyone lived more than 25 miles from a dispensary because there weren't any. And so when 2016 rolled around, you had a lot of patients who were growing their own cannabis who wanted to be able to continue doing that. And who knows, maybe they were diverting it, maybe they were doing whatever they were doing with it and saw adult use legalization cannabis as a threat to them being able to continue cultivating. So I just wanted to give a deep dive for listeners on the fact that it it seemed pretty clear to me that there were a lot of folks who were actually against cannabis prohibition who voted no on the initiative in 2016, which probably led to its failure. Mm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so this one was able to to get more people together. Um, and I think since we were just talking about uh, the kind of domino effects up in the Northeast, it's worth mentioning that this will help with the domino effect uh, into New Mexico. Um, they're going to be debating this in the legislature next year as well. Um, and so uh, having Arizona move forward with it, I think will give them a, yeah, one more reason to, to do it themselves. I think you're 100% right about that. Well, let's wrap up our cannabis results from election night. Mississippi continued its legacy as being among the first states to decriminalize simple cannabis possession all the way back in 1976. Mississippi legalized medical cannabis on election night. And Sam, this one also passed by about 50 points, which surprised me. So, who I mean, who knew that medical cannabis was so popular in the Deep South? So are we going to begin to see more of the very deep red holdouts move towards reform? Because we've already seen that in Oklahoma. We've seen it in Arkansas. And now Mississippi has done this as well. Is that domino effect that we've been talking about going to be present here in the in the deep south as well? I really hope so. Um, but again, it like unfortunately, it comes back to this question of ballot initiatives versus not. Um, since I think a lot of the other surrounding states like uh, Louisiana, for example, um, Tennessee, I don't think uh, that they have ballot initiatives. Um, and so it is all up to state lawmakers listening to voters on this. Um, but it, I mean, especially what I think would really, really tip the scales would be one of those states um, going to adult use, um, just because then that does have the effect of, you know, some states residents just being able to drive to another state to make purchases. Um, I think that's a lot more pressure than a medical program, where even if they have reciprocity, um, if your state doesn't have one, um, then, you know, none of your uh, state residents can make purchases there anyway. Um, so I think if Oklahoma moves towards adult use, which I wouldn't be surprised if they do in just a couple of years, now that it's you know passed in South Dakota and shown that it can win in, in a deep red state, um, I think that that'll uh, be like the, the huge domino effect. But um, until then, it might take some time. I'm going to smuggle in a surprise question here for <laughs> you. And this is really just a curiosity on my part, yeah. Sam. I know you're, you're very plugged into the, the cannabis industry. How many dispensaries are there in Oklahoma? Because the last time I, I, I looked into this, there was just a huge number of dispensaries. And I think that might surprise a lot of our listeners. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing is, kind of no one knows, um, or at least it's not published anywhere. And it's not really centralized information. Um, so the regulators do, you know, ha have to approve these licenses. Um, but they, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, I think that there's something like 2000 licenses that have been granted. Um, but then um, as far as the number of open dispensaries, it's thought to be much lower just because it's so easy to get a license there. There's a lot of people who get a license and then, you know, either don't have the money or the expertise or the real estate or something is keeping them from opening. Um, it, but they do think it's something like 500 or so. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a wide open market there. I'm here with Sam Tracy. We're going to talk about what a Biden-Harris administration might mean for prohibition at the federal level. But before we do, let's take another quick break so I can tell you how you can support the show. This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by listeners like you. This program is an all-volunteer project, and our team of volunteers donate their time, energy, and money to make this show possible. From equipment, to building and maintaining the website, to curating content, 
we rely on listeners like you to keep the lights on. For as little as $1 per month, you can support our work directly. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash prohibited. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash prohibited. Once again, visit our website at prohibitedpodcast.com and click on the support us tab. Thanks for the support. We can't do it without you. All right, Sam, I want to begin this final segment by asking you about the MORE Act. So for listeners, the MORE Act is essentially federal legislation that would end federal cannabis prohibition by removing cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act. So it's essentially a decriminalization bill and a descheduling bill, which listeners will know that cannabis is currently classified as a Schedule I narcotic by the DEA under the federal government's current regime. So I've got sort of a two-parter here, Sam. Earlier this year, congressional Democrats decided to postpone the House vote on the MORE Act until after Election Day. A lot of moderate Democrats that were in House seats that were being contested were sort of balking at the idea of voting on this because they didn't want their opponents to be able to weaponize it against them. We now know that Democrats are going to follow through with taking the House vote during the lame duck session. So that's between Election Day and Inauguration Day. But the other thing that I want you to chime in on here, Sam, is what effect do you think that the Georgia runoff elections will have on the MORE Act vote and whether or not it'll get a vote in the Senate as well? So a little bit of setup for you here. Listeners may know that in Georgia, when no candidate receives more than 50% of the votes cast in a congressional election, a runoff between the two highest vote getters is triggered. So in Georgia, both U.S. Senate seats and one House seat are headed to a runoff election. And just for listeners real quick, if you are in Georgia, please note that the House runoff election happens in December, whereas the Senate elections happen in January. One has to wonder why they would do them on different dates, but they are. So Sam, will Democrats wait to focus on this in the Senate until after the January Senate runoffs happen in Georgia, because I didn't I didn't catch all of it, but I did see that Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans have already come out and started, you know, talking badly about the Moore Act in the Senate. So, what does this landscape look like to you once this House vote happens? Yeah, for this one, I think unfortunately in the Senate it's just a complete non-starter because um, during the lame duck session, Mitch McConnell is still in charge there. Um, in the Moore Act, it's very social justice focused. It includes a lot of good things about equity, um, and so something about marijuana is a heavy lift enough. But unfortunately, with Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans, stuff about social justice makes it worse, not better. Um, and so they've already said that they would never bring up the Moore Act for a vote. Um, so really, our only chances of getting a Senate vote on it um, would be flipping those Georgia seats um, in that special election. But in the meantime, they can make votes on it in the House because Democrats are still in charge there. Um, and I really hope that they do. Um, it seems that they're going to. Uh, but I think it is a very good idea as well, just because, you know, it, it, it covers both uh, adult use and medical marijuana is just letting um, states have more control. Um, and so uh, because of that, um, Georgia, you know, doesn't even have a a real medical marijuana system. They have some low THC program, but um, 
I'm sure that the vast majority of voters there want it. They just don't have ballot initiatives. And the state legislature is very conservative and so hasn't passed it there. But if Democrats are able to run on, hey, vote for the two Democrats for these Senate seats and the federal government will take action on medical marijuana before your state government does, that's something that will get voters excited, um, something a lot of people will support both among Democratic and Republican and independent voters. And so I think that's something Democrats should absolutely be focusing on as part of building their argument um, to get people excited for these special elections. It's certainly going to be fascinating to watch and we'll be watching really closely. It seems to me there's this interesting dynamic, though, because obviously cannabis legalization is very popular all across the country as we've been talking about this whole episode and looking at the electoral results. But it seems like the Republicans are very eager to use cannabis as a reason why they should maintain control of the Senate because they want to block it. And it's just it's interesting to me that Republicans generally seem more willing to embrace blocking cannabis, you know, at the federal Mm -hmm. level than Democrats seem to be willing to embrace it. And that just seems totally backwards to me because of how popular it is. Do you think my read is is wrong there? And do you see that dynamic shifting at all in the next few weeks? Yeah, I mean, it is really bizarre to me, too. Um, And I mean, for Republicans, I guess they could see it as just a way to rile up their own base, because even though the vast majority of the public supports it, um, when we're talking specifically about adult use, um, you know, it's like 80 percent of Democrats, but then only about 50 percent of Republicans. So they're really split on it. And their base is more of the conservative voters uh, rather than moderate Republicans. And so because of that, they might just be trying to get them energized. But yeah, it doesn't really make that much sense because it's uh, when you look at public polling of Democrats and independents and Republicans, generally, they all support um, marijuana reform and definitely medical marijuana. So um, Democrats should take a much bigger stand on it um, just because we've seen it win so big in all of these red states. It's it's kind of it's just absurd not to. Well, let's talk about Biden and Harris for a while. You and I both know a lot of folks in the drug policy reform community who have been critical of both of them due to their prior records on drugs and drug policy and harm reduction. So beginning with President-elect Biden, as we all know, he was an architect of the 1994 crime bill, and he was also the sponsor of the RAVE Act. For listeners, go back and listen to our episode with Mitchell Gomez in Season 1 for some discussion about that piece of legislation. You can also go back and listen to TWID, which, uh, or mm-hmm. This Week in Drugs, TWID, which mentions the RAVE Act um, on, a, on a bunch of different episodes. But many of the folks in the drug policy reform community see Biden as really an embodiment of some of the worst facets of the modern drug war. And Biden famously does not support cannabis legalization. But Biden appears to have softened his rhetoric and his policies during this electoral campaign. In fact, at the final presidential debate, there was a moment that didn't get as much attention as I thought it should. Biden actually said, and I'm quoting here, No one should go to jail because they have a drug problem, which to me sounds suspiciously like drug possession decriminalization. Biden also said that expanding mandatory minimum sentences was a mistake. So which is it, Sam? Is is Biden an irredeemable drug warrior like some claim? Or is he a reformed policymaker who will actually push for decriminalization at the federal level? 
I mean, honestly, I don't think he's either one. Um, I think he's just a career politician who has, you know, started his career started so long ago that at the time, you know, being tough on drugs was the only way to win elections, or at least that's what people thought. And that's generally what happened. Um, People who were seen as soft on crime lost their elections. And so when he was, you know, coming up in Delaware and he was the senator there, um, then it, it uh, there was a lot of public support for those. Um, and so he went along with it. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of public support all over the place for criminal justice reform of, yeah, reforming the very policies that he supported back in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and so I don't think he's irredeemable, um, but he does have to do, you know, a lot of substantive work to redeem himself. Um, because, you know, he didn't just support those policies, but he did actually, you know, write many of them and voted in favor of many of them. Um, and he's only just begun to actually undo that stuff. Um, I mean, to his credit back when he was part of the Obama administration, um, they pushed through the reduction of the crack, uh, crack cocaine and, uh, powder disparity. Um, they let state marijuana programs proceed. So they weren't amazing, but they did do some good things, um, And I think that they just see that there's a whole lot of support for this among Democrats, um, among their voters and among the general public. So I think both he and Harris kind of see, okay, we need to do something about marijuana. Otherwise, Republicans are going to, you know, run against us with that in 2024. Um, So I think it'll be a a relatively high priority, um, even if they don't talk about it as much as uh, some of these other things. Well, let's talk about Vice President-elect Harris. Listeners will know that Kamala Harris was the district attorney in San Francisco and later the California Attorney General before she was elected to the U.S. Senate. So in short, she was a prosecutor for much of her career. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, though, I recently was listening to another podcast where a very progressive public defender in California who, who has tried cases against Harris actually said that she she found Harris to be the most progressive district attorney in the state of California and was making the claim that folks have distorted her record. And maybe lending some credence to that viewpoint, since being in the U.S. Senate, Kamala Harris also appears to have softened her views. And in fact, she sponsored the Marijuana Justice Act and the Moore Act in the Senate. So some folks may even suspect that she can push Biden from the left on cannabis policy. So what's your take here? Yeah, in a similar way, she, you know, started her career being much harsher than she is now. Um, And unlike Joe Biden, I mean, she's much younger. um, And so um, she's had, you know, less time to to do bad things. And I mean, before when she was a prosecutor, um, she still, you know, did a lot of enforcement of uh, cannabis um, and could have been an activist who could have used her discretion to push that issue forward. But at the end of the day, I think it's, you know, less I give her less blame for, you know, being a law enforcer who is enforcing bad policies rather than being a policymaker uh, making bad policies. And she was only in the Senate for a relatively short time. She had a much longer career um, as a prosecutor. And so, um, but yeah, as you said, in the Senate, when she's making policy, she's been much more progressive than she was as a prosecutor. Um, And whether that's because she uh, had a true change of heart, or if she just sees the role differently, or if she just sees public opinion moving, I don't really care about the reason. Um, She's made big improvements. um, And so, yeah, she's definitely to the left of Joe Biden, uh, which isn't saying much. Um, You know, I wish that we 
he was not my favorite in the primary. He was my least favorite until Michael Bloomberg got in. Uh, but he was definitely much better than Trump. And Harris is definitely uh, better than Biden on these issues. And so um, hopefully she will help move him along a bit in his uh, during his presidency. Well, Sam, I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of Prohibited. I'm going to smuggle one more question in that you're not expecting. Mm-hmm. I know that you're very involved in uh, electoral politics there in Maine, where you live. Maine is one of those states we referred to earlier that passed cannabis adult use legalization in 2016. Now that we're a few years into that, what are things looking like in Maine? How's uh, how's legalization going? They are looking great. Um, it's been a long time coming, but I'm, uh, last month, uh, so October 2020, we had the very first retail sales begin. Um, there's still only a small number of stores open, um, but more are getting licensed all the time um, and the industry is slowly growing. Um, luckily, we have a governor and a state legislature that are now supportive of it. Um, we've got a, a fantastic head of our Office of Marijuana Policy, uh, Eric Gunderson, um, who's been moving that forward, which was, you know, it's definitely a weird time to be implementing uh, adult use cannabis sales during COVID. Um, so we had a bad governor who slowed us down back in Le- the LePage days. Um, and then when we started trying to do it, COVID hit. Um, so it's been slow, uh, but yeah, we finally got stores open um, and I'm optimistic about it, you know, growing at a, a, a steady pace over the, the coming years. Well, Sam, I know you've heard the show before and you know that I close every interview with the same question. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk to us about today? Um, one thing that I do just want to uh, plug while talking about these criminal justice reform ballot initiatives um, is that in my uh, my own city of Portland, Maine, um, we did also pass a marijuana initiative at the local level, which was to repeal the city council's cap on the number of marijuana retailers in the city. Um, they had passed a cap of uh, 20 licenses um, in the whole city while there's you know no similar cap for breweries, uh, which are a huge part of our our, our local economy here. Um, and so some awesome activists, uh, David Boyer, who was one of the, the main leaders of the 2016 initiative, um, he put together a local initiative to repeal that cap. Um, and so that passed as well, um, along with a bunch of other uh, progressive policies, um, which was great to see. Um, but yeah, it was great that even um, after passing adult use that um, you know, these are always uh, constant battles that we need to fight uh, with overregulation. Um, and then there's also new stuff on the horizon with psychedelics reform and uh, decriminalization. So, yeah, even after you get adult use marijuana, it is not over. That's just uh, one big step in the process. Sam Tracy, thank you so much for joining me on Prohibited. And hopefully we'll be able to have you back to talk about more exciting election results. Great. Yeah, I had a great time and uh, would love to be back. Hopefully we'll have some stuff to celebrate in January. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. Our editor is Chris Harris. Our music is by KCAP. Our webmaster is Ricardo Amaya. And I'm your host, Scott Cecil. If you enjoyed this show, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash prohibited and share it with your friends and family. This podcast is a production of Prohibited Media. You can find a full archive of our episodes at our website at prohibitedpodcast.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, be sure to leave a rating and a review. It helps new listeners find us. If you have ideas or feedback for the show, 
feel free to send us an email at prohibitedpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, no matter how prohibition impacts your life and the lives of those around you, you're still free to think for yourself. And we hope we've given you something to think about today. We hope you enjoyed the show and see you next time.